0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week's guest is a familiar voice to podcast lovers. Greg Jenner is the host of the BBC's chart-topping history podcast, You're Dead to Me, and the historical consultant of the Horrible Histories TV show. He joined me to talk about his new book, Ask a Historian, which is every bit as funny, informative and delightful as fans of those shows would expect. Please be warned, this episode has occasional cursing and is not suitable for kids. Greg, you are not the first historian to appear on this show, but you are the first one who is both a professional historian and really, really good at writing jokes. Given that history itself isn't exactly a barrel of laughs, can you tell us how you came to occupy this particular niche and how you're able to use bleak material in your comedy? Right.
1: (laughs) So, yes, you've had Sir Simon Sharmer on, who's a proper historian and and one of my um, all-time sort of great influences. So, immediately, I pale into insignificance against him. But my background, I suppose, is a little bit... Different to most historians in that I have always loved history, always wanted to be a historian from, you know, a pretty young age, from late teens probably. But my passion was always comedy. Growing up, that was how I accessed a lot of my historical joy and passion was through comedy about the past. So Blackadder, Monty Python, The Goon Show, you know, quite a lot of my dad's influences actually. And in the mid 90s, it was Eddie Izzard, who's a sort of genius. And does lot of funny riffs on history and archaeology and, and you know, big grand stories. And so I, I kind of experienced historiographical thinking through the lens of joke writing and through stand-up and through sketch writing and film. So by the time I got to university and I studied archaeology and history undergraduates and then did my master's in medieval studies, and even by that point knew that my interests were a little different to other historians i you know i'd already spotted i was a little bit of a weirdo because i was using simpsons references and south park jokes in my essays and sometimes my lecturers would say this is a good analogy and sometimes they say this is inappropriate for an academic essay <laughs> but actually i was always finding kind of tropes and Stylistic or technical analogies that were I found to be really rewarding and really interesting and and ways into exploring the past. You know, I wasn't doing it to be flippant and silly. You know, when I read Chaucer, you know, I was a I was going to be a medieval lit specialist. That was going to be my thing, but I couldn't afford my PhD. But the idea would have been to do a PhD on medieval romance literature, um, so specifically Arthuriana, Chaucer, and so on. Uh, looking at jokes, I would have been looking at comedy and satire, the subversive, the anarchic. You know, which is classic Chaucer, all the sort of bathos and, and farts and sex and, and, you know, yeah. power and, and old so men falling over. It's, it's sort of
0: basically just a bunch of dirty jokes.
1: It's filthy. It's <laughs> filthy and it's, it's highbrow filth, isn't it? It's, you know, on the one hand, it's sort of, it's this sort of, uh, noble and grand literary canon. And on the other hand, it is slapstick and violence yeah. and gore and weird jokes and women cheating on their husbands, you know, in a sneaky way. So I had a kind of, a comedic bent already as a student. Uh, during my masters, I, I pivoted slightly away from the kind of Arthuriana in terms of the the literary canon, and I started looking instead at the reception of it in in popular culture. So my my master's thesis was on films about King Arthur because I was starting to understand that actually that's what I thought was really quite unique and quite interesting about this story was that here we have this tremendous literary cycle and you know you have the sort of the french vulgate cycle and you then you have the sort of english later version of it and the 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 mallory is the probably most famous english version but what was intriguing to me was that cinema could not let go of this canon and kept reinterpreting it kept exploring it kept reviving elements and there was a sort of There was a really interesting intellectual and cultural history, but also there was a tension in there as well because I I was uh, quite quickly aware that historians get very defensive when a film is made about their period. (laughs) And historians are people of culture. We love movies and art and books. Of course we do. And many of us consume and enjoy fiction and and narrative storytelling about history. But when it's on our period and when it starts to tread on our specialisms, we get very sort of tetchy and a little bit sort of like, well, no, they didn't get that right. And so my master's thesis ended up as this sort of weird Frankenstein's monster, which was that it was an exploration of how cinema interpreted these classic Arthurian texts, but also how historians responded to them, how medievalists reacted to Their turf being trodled over by Hollywood and its big old budgets, and so you know, aged twenty-two or whatever, twenty-three, I was already quite deep into the into the quagmire of debating. Issues of accuracy and ethics, and who owns stories, who owns the past, who controls the past? You know, are historians curators? Are we gatekeepers? Are we public servants? Um, does accuracy matter? Does the public have a right and a duty to be told what is true, what is not true? Can Hollywood do what it wants? All these sort of ethical, you know, questions and conversations. And moreover, I was really fascinated by the, the way that each generation of filmmaker or storyteller sort of took a medieval idea or medieval stories and repurposed them to reflect current concerns. So you can look at the kind of, obviously, this Excalibur, the John Borman movie. You can look at Lancelot du Lac by Bresson, which is a very difficult, austere film. You can look, obviously, at Monty Python's Holy Grail, which is the best of all of them. And actually, medievalists agreed. I I I surveyed 100 medievalists and they all agreed that Python's Holy Grail is the best Arthurian film because it's really funny and weird and and bizarre and violent. And then so is Mallory. It's full of bizarre violence. So that was my routine, you know, comedy, culture, but increasingly being aware that actually history is used in a creative way. It's used by the public, by storytellers, and that we, most of us, engage with the past not through great literary tomes, of you know, sort of 700 pages of historiographical writing by professors, but actually through Downton Abbey and Poldark and Tom Cruise movies. That's sort of how most of us engage with the past through pop culture. So I was slightly evangelised by this point. And, And funnily enough, you know, at the time, I was a bit of a weird radical in my department and they weren't quite short to do with me. And they had to convene a special panel to mark my thesis because they were like, this isn't really medieval studies. This is something else. And I was like, well, no, I think it is medieval studies. I think it's about medievalism. I think it's about how the medieval is used and understood now. And they were like, all right. <laughs> so there was a slight reluctance. Uh, and ironically, now, there's a huge amount of work into this area. And I, I think I was perhaps relatively early adopter and and now I get invited back in the same university where I studied uh, York which I you know I love very much but they very kindly have me back quite often to to teach students there or to lecture or to discuss these issues and um, Royal Holloway sometimes invites me back in as well so it's a sort of it was a sort of interesting journey because I I felt like a bit of a weirdo in my department at the time but I guess in, in some ways I was a little ahead of the curve but also I was doing quite a lot of of work into these really important questions that when I ended up in the television industry, which is, you know, I couldn't afford my PhD. That was the next move for me was I wanted to go into the most influential place where I could shape and try and you know, without sounding too big-headed, try and improve slightly the quality of historic, you know, historical information that was being given to the public, because at the time, and it's a lot better now, but at the time, this is two thousand and five, there were essentially three historians on British television. Um, they were David Starkey, Simon Sharma, the brilliant Simon Sharma, and and Bethany Hughes would be allowed like one program a year, but she was a woman, and they didn't really want women on telly doing history because you know it's a man's game. That was the sort of the logic, and so. A lot of history programs were presented by Jeremy Clarkson and by, uh, <laughs> in, in fact, you know, one of the most prominent history presenters of the time was Richard Hammond from, you know, there were two Top Gear presenters who were doing quite a lot of history shows. And there were a lot of celebrity vehicles, Joanna Lumley or, um, you know, sort of actors or or people from Coronation Street doing celebrity style journeys into the past, which is still a legitimate form of history, but it, there were so few programs on television in two thousand five, made involving a historian, you know, either presented by or written by, or even consulted, you know, even just you know sitting there and going, we well, you, you probably can't do that. And it felt to me like there was a bit of a paucity, or you know, a, a big old a gap, really. And actually, I I got quite lucky. that I I, landed, I sort of came into the industry in two thousand five, very junior, but quite quickly rose up because I. I was quite rare having a masters degree everyone was like oh you're look at you with your masters and now everyone has a masters but at the time it was quite uh, quite rare and actually things really improved quite quickly. And now, you know, you can throw a stick in a, in a historical party of full of historians and actually 10 of the people in the room will probably have been on television. So, um, you know, we now have lots of scholars who regularly present things. You know, Lucy Worsley and Yanina you know, Ramirez and, um, you know, Mary Beard obviously is the most canonical, but, um, you know, Susanna Lipscomb and Helen Castor and lots and lots of people are, are given platforms to share their work. And that's much more encouraging. So I joined the TV industry because I felt that like there was a bit of a it just felt like it was too much of an entertainment genre and and it wasn't quite working with historians enough. Once I got into telly, uh documentary was sort of interesting for a bit, but I then quickly found that actually my interests were drama and comedy because of course that's uh, seems to always have been my bent. And so I got very lucky that I got to work on dramas, uh, historical dramas for a couple of years which was really influential, really interesting. So a lot of that intellectual work I'd done as a student about who controls the past, what is accuracy, does it matter? Well, suddenly I found myself making dramas where I was having to have these debates with myself. You know, you're having your own internal argument about can I do this justifiably? Is this, a, you know, is this too far of a stretch? Is this too much of a poetic license? And then I ended up on Horrible Histories through pure luck. And and for your listeners who who perhaps aren't familiar, *Horrible Histories* was a huge TV uh, series now, but at the time was a a kind of ludicrous gamble—a really, really, a very, very kind of radical idea based on the book series by Terry Deary, which had sold 20 million copies. You know, they're a huge book series, but the books are very distinctive, and we were going to do a comedy sketch show based on them in the style of Monty Python. But the difference would be that everything you saw, everything the children saw, would be factually grounded, and so they weren't going to have a historian on the show. And I sort of talked my way onto the program. I sort of I was in the building at the time making a documentary about castles or something, some some random, you know, (laughs) sort of England's finest gardens, something like that. I can't remember exactly. And I I sort of knocked on the door of my uh, boss um, and just said, "Uh, Richard, I love comedy. I grew up on Python and Blackadder. I wrote my master's thesis on Monty Python. I know how to do this. Uh, you know, I'm not experienced. I've never worked in comedy specifically, but I, I can help with this. Please give me a job. You know, I'll do the photocopying. I'll make the tea. But I this is the dream job for me. I'm a historian who loves comedy. And he was like, all right, sure. <laughs> I, was, I was expecting a much bigger battle. But he was like, yeah, okay, it's probably a good point. Actually, we weren't going to have a historian, but it's probably useful to have one. And so I, I got sort of kind of seconded really onto this extraordinary experiment, which was we were going to make a comedy sketch show for children aged seven to 11, where we were going to tackle violence and gore and weirdness and medicine and food and fashion and all of those things that make history surprising and bewildering and and foreign sometimes. But we were going to use 21st century aesthetics, jokes, songs, parodies, TV show spoofs to try and close the gap between the past and the present and to give children a way into the subject and that was 2008 we were a extraordinary you know very expensive very strange show the BBC were very supportive but also very nervous because we were going to do like properly violent violence and we were going to do really weird stuff and there's going to be poo jokes and all sorts Um, and yeah we've ended up as a this sort of huge success which has been amazing
0: There is another dimension to this, which is that historical jokes, i.e. jokes from the past about their own period, are very rarely still funny. Why is that? Are there any (laughs) historical jokes which are actually still good? Or are they all completely unpalatable to us?
1: I love this question. And I I have addressed this in, in my new book, Ask a Historian, because as someone who loves comedy, I'm fascinated by the history of comedy. And so there are Obviously, through the, you know, through the ages, there are jokes that we can recover. The oldest joke in the world is, is from Bronze Age Sumer. So it's, you know, over 4,000 years old and it's a fart joke, which immediately you go, hooray, good. Okay. It's good to know that people have always done fart gags and it's written in cuneiform and, you know, it's, it's got a sort of double negative in it. So it's not quite funny by our standards, but the joke, I think is what's something that's never not happened. A wife not farting in her husband's lap. So it's a sort of gag that works better as a kind of, almost as a kind of sitcom. Uh, you kind of have to visualise it, actually. It doesn't really work as a punchline. It's more something you have to imagine her sitting in his lap. It's, it's almost
0: funny. It's almost it's, funny. It's, it's, sort of, <laughs> it's nearly there, isn't
1: it? Um, but someone asked me, what's the oldest joke book for the for the book? And so I was sort of looking around and in my head I was thinking, well, maybe it's Aristophanes, you know, maybe it's a Plautus. you know, one of these sort of great ancient writers who, who, who specialised in gags. But we don't have joke books and we don't have the famous joke book that was commissioned by Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great. He commissioned uh, the Sixty Club, who were these sixty very funny uh, sort of Athenian philosophers who did gags. And he commissioned them to write down their best stuff and send it off to him, which is probably the earliest joke book, but we don't have it. So the, the earliest joke book we have is called the Philokelos. Uh, Philogillos meaning the laughter lover and it's from about 1500 1600 years ago so late antiquity uh written by two people who we know almost nothing about um they're kind of very minor writers but it's got about 260 i think 265 joke sort of structures in it and some of them are funny i've tried in the book to make a few of them into sort of modern english a few of them made me chuckle uh they're very kind of, they're reliant on stock characters. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of idiots. There's a lot of sort of really stupid idiots and there's a kind of avaricious men and arrogant men, but the idiot jokes are the best ones. So I guess, I guess a classic joke from 1,600 years ago is, I'm trying to forget the, the exact wording, but it's something like, doctor, doctor, when I wake up in the morning, I feel terrible and have a headache, but I feel better after half an hour. And the doctor says, all right, we'll wake up half an hour later then. And it's, I mean, it's not that's the best a, joke in the world. That's a dad
0: joke, isn't it? That's it's a classic a, dad, a dad joke, joke, isn't it?
1: It really is. And I mean, a medieval joke from 1511, <laughs> or rather early modern joke from the, the reign of Henry VIII. Uh, this is from a book called The Demand Joyeuse* or the, the Joyous Questions or Riddles. And it's a riddle book, actually. But this one functions as a joke. And that would be, what is the cleanest leaf in the forest? Holly, because no one dares wipe his ass on it. So, it's a sort of it's a bum joke. It's, you know, another classic. But there are lots of constructions in these jokes which sort of still work, actually. It's sort of idiots being idiots. And I, I think when you then look at the, the modern versions of that in English culture, we have, you know, stupid Irishman jokes, which, you know, when I was growing up was a real trope. I mean, these days, you know, everyone agrees it's racist and we don't do it so much. But when I was a kid, you know, you're exposed to a lot of those kind of jokes still from my dad's generation of, you know, a, a, a stupid Irishman you know, does this or, a, you know, a tight fist is Scott does this. So the idea of kind of tropes about certain peoples is something that runs through comedy and goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and, and Romans. So that was interesting. And it was, it was, you know, definitely, it's definitely fun to see what people laughed at. A lot of the jokes are about enslaved people in Roman times, which is actually, you know, for us is a bit, a bit awkward and we also see you know 19th century jokes are you know that they're much more proximate to us in time You'd, you'd imagine victorian era jokes would work more easily because we're speaking roughly the same language as them obviously but they're actually harder i find a lot of the time they're so wordy and they're so kind of clumsily constructed or or maybe not clumsily maybe maybe overly constructed that they're really hard to penetrate and they don't really work as jokes can you
0: tell us a victorian joke
1: oh i mean there's honestly they're so they're so so they're so difficult sometimes i can't even what i can do is recommend somewhere to go and find them so there is a there's a wonderful twitter account Called Victorian Humor, which is run by an academic called Dr. Bob, uh, and he um, is—he's a specialist on nineteenth-century newspapers and comedy, and he just publishes all these bonkers jokes he finds in Victorian newspapers, and they're so bewildering and difficult, and and they're very pun-based, and they don't really work for us now. But one Victorian joke that we do still use is, "Why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the other side." And that uh, is—it's a joke that was actually part of a wider remit of joke. Long story short, it's a punchline joke, which means that it's not designed to stand alone as a joke on its own it's meant to come after lots of very difficult riddles so the idea is that you set someone up with the expectation that this is also a very difficult riddle you tell them five six very hard riddles they tease it out they kind of go oh I don't know I don't, I don't know and you finally come to your sixth one and say why did the chicken cross the road and the person's going oh I don't know um, is it, is it, is, it, is, it a, is it a pun is it some sort of literary reference is it something to do with the Iliad and then you go to so get to the other side and they go oh you bastard and it's that joke that is that we only have the joke now and so we tell it as an anti-joke which means we tell it as a joke which the the kind of bathetic collapse is the whole purpose of it but it was designed to be a kind of relief or release of tension at the end of several other really difficult riddles so that you're you're kind of hyped up desperate trying to solve this puzzle and then they go ah get to the other side and so that's a trope that we see in earlier jokes. So, the De Montjoyeuse, this book from fifteen eleven, has some of those anti-jokes as well. There's a terrible one, which is, uh, "How can a man perceive a sheep in a flock of goats, or or, some, or, or a goat in a flock of sheep?" Answer. With his eyes and you go, Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, that's, that's rubbish. (laughs) It's, it's really really
1: bad. But the idea is that it's come at the end of several other difficult riddles. And so you're all set to answer this very taxing thing. And then it's like, so there's kind of what we, I think what we understand sometimes in terms of comedy is that the past often we describe people in the past as not being funny or we describe them as dour or we, you know, we call the Victorians prudish and humorless, mirthless. And it's really unfair. But what is important, I think, is that comedy is very cultural and it's re- very reflective of, of mores and, and concerns, but also of styles of speech and, and of rhetorical patterns and all sorts of things. Uh, but also, of course, it's it's deeply referential to the events and the news and and what's happened that week. And So there is a problem, I think, sometimes that a lot of historical comedy just does not translate. And so we tend to then look at the past and go, well, they're all a bunch of humorless, you know, uh, sort of boring, uh, po-faced, uh, just sitting there going, mmm. but people loved to laugh in the past. And, you know, the fact that there's a, a textbook called The Helos, The Laughter Lover, tells us that actually laughter was a huge part of, of every civilization, every society. But that doesn't mean that what they found funny, we find funny. And, you know, working on a TV show about about comedy, it'd be interesting in 20, 30 years' time to see if people still laugh at horrible histories. They might not.
0: Your new book, Ask a Historian, is very funny. I can say that unequivocally. (laughs) Thank you. It's very kind. (laughs) It's very funny in 2021. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Come 2023, it might be awful. Yeah. Can you give us the elevator pitch for the book? It's a very simple elevator
1: pitch. As a historian, I'm often trying to figure out what might people find interesting. You know, you you come up with an idea for a podcast episode, you come up with an idea for a TV show or a a book, and you think, well, I hope people like this. Uh, I hope it's interesting. But on Ask a Historian, I just went very simple, very route one, and I asked people, what do you want to know? Um, So it was, you know, the idea would have been, I was going to, when I was touring my previous book, Dead Famous, the idea would have been to to go around, talk about the history of celebrity for 50 minutes or so. And then uh, the last 10 minutes, I would have opened the floor to let people ask me anything at all about history, which is something I, I tend to do anyway but i would i would have jotted down their their questions and gone home and, and written a proper formal answer and it would have formed the book but unfortunately dead famous launched 4 days before the covid pandemic so there was no book tour so i did it online instead and we got uh, probably 500 600 answers or questions rather and and then it was a question of choosing the 50 questions which were most interesting most answerable um had really rich um histories um could be potentially funny could be surprising trying to get a you know trying to get a spread of global history because that's something I'm I'm trying to do a lot more of I'm very aware of my background as someone who's only really studied european history and so I'm I'm doing a lot more when I can to expand my own horizons and and to work with historians who specialize in asian history and, and central american or south american or you know to, to african history in particular to make sure that I'm not perpetuating a very kind of eurocentric um, or or western centric perspective, so uh, the idea of the book really was to try and get a spread of different themes you know some food history, some um myth busting, some personal stuff where people asked asked me my personal tastes, you know favorite movies or whatever, some funny ones someone asked me. A brilliant question of which people from history would you hire for a casino heist? Um, which <laughs> it was really fun to answer because you suddenly think, Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. You need a safe cracker. You need a kind of getaway driver. There's, you've got to have some muscle. You need someone to go undercover. You've got to have a kind of, you know, a brainiac. There needs to be a kind of tech person who can break the security. Really fun to answer that. And so as a historian, it's nice sometimes to be set a kind of creative question that isn't necessarily about, you know, did this happen, yes or no, but to still actually have to think through, well, who would you want on your team? And you don't want Stalin, even though he was a bank robber in his youth. I mean, he's clearly going to shoot everyone at the end of the movie, so (laughs) it can't be trusted. So it's about putting together a team of people, you know, people like Josephine Baker, who is, you know, an incredible celebrity, a phenomenal singer and actress and a beautiful, dazzling star, but also was in the French Resistance, you know, she was capable of being a spy, she was capable of going undercover. But people like uh, Amin Panafer, who was an ancient Egyptian tomb robber, uh, or Diocles, the uh, Roman charioteer, who was the most successful sportsperson of all time in terms of earnings, uh, You know, he would be the getaway driver because by the sounds of it, he was lucky because most charioteers were crushed to death it's incredibly dangerous and he survived thousands of races so
0: you didn't want Nero as your charioteer no
1: (laughs) well Nero famously crashed his chariot but declared he declared that he would have won anyway had he finished and so he he was you know this was at the Olympics where he raced I think with 12 horses and everyone else had 6 horses but he he crashed out but he sort of stood up and went well I would have won so I think (laughs) I'm still the champion and they kind of went "All right." didn't Um, people
0: let him win on account uh, of his being emperor I think they did Yes, he did, and he he
1: entered all the Olympic events, and he. I mean, he the story goes that he comes home with something like one thousand eight hundred laurel wreaths or something you know, like he's he's competed across Greece in everything, and they've just given him all the awards. So, um, so yeah, there's a kind of there's a kind of joy to being a historian who gets asked stuff because sometimes it's really easy to just go, well, we know a lot about this, and here's the kind of potted history of someone asked me about the history of meringues and it was really fun to just sort of go okay yeah we we know a fair bit about the history of meringues it's uh, we're not quite sure who invented the name we're not sure if they're from a meringue in switzerland or you know if they're a french invention but we know roughly where they start sort of here uh, and then sometimes people ask you a much more difficult question and it's you know when was monday invented was uh, a question that someone asked and it's really hard to answer that because on the one hand you go well What do you mean, when was Monday invented? Are there not always Mondays? And you think, well, no, of course they're on, actually. A seven-day week is a human construction. It's a cultural thing. And so who invented the seven-day week? Oh, okay, well, we could start there. So then you're back into the Babylonian era, but actually they don't necessarily have a regular seven-day week. And the Romans and Etruscans early on had an eight-day week, like the Beatles. And it's actually probably ancient Jews who give us the seven-day week because they had the kind of the rigid seven-day sabbath so potentially the monday might start there but they didn't really name their days and so monday potentially is only about 2400 years old which is when we get the kind of greco-persian fusion that gives us the the astrological system you know of of taurus and cancer and all those sort of a- astrological signs in the sky but also the idea of monday and its name being named after the moon well that's obviously later still because you've then got Moon's Day and in English Tuesday, so Chew the God of War in Anglo Saxon sort of culture or, or early Germanic culture, Woden's Day. So again it depends on your language, but of course the Romans it was named after the gods or the planets. So a question like that is really difficult to answer because you can you find yourself going Oh yeah, Mondays don't exist until someone invents them, which is very surprising and moreover as a social historian you know i finished that answer very briefly by saying the monday that garfield hates you know garfield the cat hates mondays famously but the monday that he hates is 100 years old because the monday he hates is the first day of the week after the weekend when his owner john his butler who gives him lasagna has to go back to work and leave him alone and he hates that and the first day of the week being a monday is a it's 100 years old because prior to that Sunday was the first day of the week and before that it was Saturday so historically Monday was the third day of the week then the second and now it's the first and that's to do with the industrial revolution and the kind of changing labor patterns that you get through you know factories and 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 regular shift work so Mondays are either 2400 years old or 100 years old it depends how you want to measure it so there's a kind of real um pleasure sometimes in being set a difficult question where you can't actually give a definitive answer but you get to explore a variety of ways of looking at it, and that's something I really enjoy doing.
0: Hello, it's Vas here. One of our all time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre order now. There is some fantastically weird stuff in here. One person asked you whether it was true that Europeans once snorted powdered mummies, and the answer was not what I was expecting.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a thing, a thing called corpse medicine, and corpse medicine was quite a big deal in the early modern period, particularly in the in the 1600s uh, or fifteen hundred, sixteen hundreds, 1600s. And uh, the word mummy, you know, in my head brings to mind... Um, janitors wrapped in bandages and scooby-doo you know the kind of classic hollywood version of it but but mummy would be is is derived from the arabic word mumya which means a sort of a tar or resin that was used to preserve ancient egyptian mummies and so there is a there's a sort of interesting history here in the, the fact that there was medical cannibalism throughout history the ancient romans would drink gladiator blood to cure epilepsy and they might, you know, various Roman doctors recommended uh, drinking a, a broth made of um, ground-up human bones to restore vitality and health. And there is a long-standing tradition for kings, for example, in you know 1600s, to yeah absorb m- um, mummy powder as it was called. You know, Charles II of England takes mummy powder or spirit of skull as it was called. And we know people would make a kind of what they called a marmalade out of bone marrow and they would flavor it with chocolate sometimes and so there's this surprising shocking alarming history of eating other people as a remedy and it's not necessarily widespread throughout society it's not like everyone was doing it but there is this strand within medical history of certain people doing it and there is a black market that kicks up in uh, in parts of sort of the spanish world i think in the 1600s or 1700s where people are kind of mass-producing mummies. They're not ancient anymore. They're just sort of someone who's died that week, uh, and they're being sold as authentic mummy. And we also have the story told by Li Shizhen, the Chinese writer, and he's speaking about Arab culture. And he's, he's saying that in the Arab world, uh, there is a thing called mellified man, where an old man at the end of his life who wants to sort of donate his body almost, almost a sort of organ donation really, will eat and drink only honey until he dies, presumably of sort of acute onset diabetes and he is buried and then dug up a hundred years later on and consumed as a sort of sweet delicious medicine <laughs> and and so you kind of go wow I mean that might not be true because Shi Shizhen is writing about a, you know a different society and he's writing after the facts and maybe it's a bit a bit dubious but what an extraordinary thing to do to, do- to donate your body so someone else can feel strong again and to say in a hundred years time I will be <laughs> You know, the great <laughs> remedy, the Barocca of my day. So there's there's a really <laughs> intriguing history there. And obviously, cannibalism uh, goes back to the Stone Age. We know, you know, back in the Stone Age, people, we know excarnated, which means uh, defleshed bones. And it's potentially that means that they're eating them, perhaps in a kind of ritual religious affair, or perhaps it's simply lunch. We don't know. So it's not totally surprising, but the medical side of it is intriguing. And, and yeah, I talk you know, in the book, of, there's a few medical questions. And uh, another one that's quite surprising is the history of hay fever has a very strong association with the history of racial supremacy theory, like the idea of of whiteness and, and race science in the 19th century. And it's a really it's sort of a, a kind of slightly hidden history, I think, actually, you know, many of us get hay fever. I'm lucky not to. I'm asthmatic, but I don't get hay fever. I've got plenty of friends who do. But in the 19th century, it was a sign of advanced, distinguished, masculine, high-status supremacy, racial supremacy. And various doctors and scholars and writers claimed that it was something the British people got, not not foreigners, but, you know, proper Brits. And then Americans claimed it as a national source of pride. And it was claimed that you know people of white European descent would get it, but not people of African descent, not people of Jewish descent because they weren't as, you know, inverted commas, sophisticated or advanced uh, as a race, and that it was a sign of great mental strength. You know, so this is a a kind of neurological disease that uh, affects people with, you know, bigger brains. So your average (laughs) labourer or farm worker doesn't get hay fever in 19th century science because they are stupider. And simpler and more base than you know the well-read man who went to Oxford and enjoys reading John Ruskin's letters. So there's this fascinatingly surprising parallel story with hay fever that in the 19th century there were people called hay feverites, uh, particularly in the USA, who were proud to have hay fever because it was a, it was a sign or a mark of distinction, and they would get together in the Aaron. Um, Adirondack Mountains, I think it is, and they would or Adirondack, isn't it? Um, get together, and they would have these sort of summer parties, and the hay fever association would get together, and they would all kind of network and pal, and it was sort of seen as a bit of an elite club. So, there is some really surprising histories when we look in the history of medicine. We can we can find things that have these secondary histories that are often not discussed, and that's one of the the pleasures of doing a, a book like that is. A simple question of when did Haifi start can actually get you into a second question of like, well, possibly it's first remarked by Al-Razi, who was a a Persian scholar about a thousand years ago, one of the brilliant minds of the the, the Arab world. He's possibly the first to note it, but by the 19th century, it becomes something else. It's part of this wider kind of supremacy idea of the white Anglo-Saxon race, um, which is, you know, deeply problematic and dangerous and racist now, and we're we're desperately trying to undo the damage of that in our thinking. But hay fever seems such an innocent, innocuous thing now. I mean, it's no fun at all, of course, but actually the the history of it has a darker, subtle uh, undertone that gets you into something a lot more nasty.
0: How do you think people in the future will remember the historical period that we're in now?
1: Right. <laughs> I mean, that's such an interesting question, isn't it? Because someone in the book asked me, how will we be known? What, what name will be given to our era? Will we be the Elizabethans? Um, I think or... that one's
0: taken, isn't it?
1: <laughs> well, that's the problem, isn't it? So there's already the Elizabethans and we are... I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, do you feel like an Elizabethan? Does that feel like a name that resonates for your life? No. No.
0: Not at no, <laughs> I mean you're a young
1: man. I'm I'm trying to cling to my youth, but um, I I don't feel particularly like that's something that's helpful for us. And but as a historian, I often lament. Well, don't lament. I often <laughs> sort of get on my high horse and go. I'm not sure the Victorian era is a very helpful phrase either. I use it. Obviously, I've used it on this podcast. I'm sure, but to you know, if you look at 1837, the technology and culture of the time, and then you look at 1901, the kind of radical transformation in life is extraordinary. The amount of technology that arrives and changes the world it doesn't feel like a single era to me. It feels, you know, you've got to split it maybe in a couple of ways. You could split it more than two ways. And again, 1952 to now, are we the same people? Is that the same era? I don't know. It feels to me like you can absolutely make that case. You can go for a kind of durée style, you know, a huge history and just go, well, look, this is this is the era of... Uh, the gradual decline of you know the british imperial (laughs) empire and its colonial sort of colonial influence on the world or we we can look at it as a you know through the lens of the cold war but i don't know it just feels to me like that's such a spread that's purely arbitrarily predicated on the remarkable health of one woman you know the queen um, who has survived such a long time that we still kind of get to call it her era but had she, you know, not been so robust, would we tie that all together in one package? I don't think we would. Would we? So, I've tried to answer in the book the fact that eras are very arbitrary periodization, sort of limits imposed by historians to try and create some sort of meaning. But they are very, you know, they're, they're it's kind of intellectual gerrymandering. You know, it's basically sort of arbitrarily going border here, border there. But they're really problematic. They're really difficult. You know, what? what is the Renaissance? When does it start? When does it stop? Does no, it overlap with the medieval? They didn't call it that, did
0: they, at the time?
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, they sort of do. They sort of don't. Yeah, the, the, I mean, it's, it's very exactly that. It's, it's, medieval people didn't call themselves medieval, obviously. And the Aztecs didn't call themselves Aztecs. And the Vikings didn't call themselves Vikings. And the Chinese didn't call themselves Chinese, really. And uh, so all these labels we apply, you know, the, the, the Byzantines don't say, hello, we're the Byzantines. They're Romans, right? So, there's all these labels and names and rules and dates that we stick on things. And I, I start my answer by saying in Horrible Histories, I put all these arbitrary borders on for the, for children watching our show to help them understand the past, but they're very limiting. You know, the medieval period uh, should encompass the early medieval period of the Vikings and the early English, but we we treat them separately. And Henry VIII, is he early modern? Is he Renaissance? Is he late medieval? What, what's that? Even Edward the Seventh, uh, you know, is he? I mean, we call him Edwardian, but like, it's, is it late Victorian? Is it? Is it not? I mean, it, there's all these very slippery rules, and so when someone says, "Well, what will our era be known as?" Firstly, I think it's very unlikely that we can name ourselves because, you know, typically people get named in hindsight later on. I mean, the Enlightenment is named by Enlightenment thinkers, isn't it? So. I get. I think it's Kant probably who gives it its name, or we've sort of gone. Yeah, fair enough. Fine, you can have that. And the Renaissance sort of, sort of has an early-ish heritage. I think. I think. For, I think it might be Vasari who, who names it, but. I don't think we get to name ourselves it's a bit arrogant, so I suspect future historians will look back on us and the the truth is is you know we're recording this in the in the week of uh the huge kind of climate conference where all the world leaders are desperately trying to they've noticed that climate change is happening and gone, oh, oh dear, oh sorry, yes, we were busy uh, so will we be the screw ups will we be you know will future historians look back on us in a world that is absolutely you know just destroyed by climate change by enormous uh, migrations of people desperately trying to save their lives because the seas are rising and the temperatures are changing and the, and the crops are failing are we going to be the generation who just absolutely failed to understand what we were doing to the planet in which case are we the fossil fuel generation or the you know <laughs> the disasters or just the just the screw ups i don't know it's very hard to know and of course i'm thirty nine and in my generation the internet just changed the world. You know, when I was 14, I had the internet a bit, but it was just a thing that I sort of mucked about on. But now, internet, smartphones, Wi-Fi, I mean, that's that's changed everything, hasn't it? It's changed politics, it's changed communication. I mean, you and I are chatting right now. You know, we're not even in the same room, but I can see you in HD. That's a phenomenal thing. So do we live in an era that is 50-something years, 60, 70 years, or, or do we live in a very small, very tight post 1990 type micro era where the thing that's changed the world is this one revolution this technological revolution i don't know i I don't think it's up to us to decide probably i think we'll find out in 50 years
0: if you could live anywhere at any time (laughs) where would you choose
1: (laughs) Uh, <laughs> historians get asked this a lot, and I think the, the kind of brave, courageous ones sort of say, "Oh, I'd love to live in the you know 1470s." But as someone with uh, asthma and and various allergies, I think I'd die immediately <laughs> if I didn't go. You know, how many antibiotics am I allowed to bring with me on this journey? I mean, I'm, I'm you can thinking, take
0: a you can take a rucksack full of modern stuff.
1: Mm, okay, <laughs> Shall all right, say? Um, <laughs> I think. Um, I've always I've always been drawn to uh, the renaissance and that sort of period of history where you get this amazing flourishing of culture but the you know one of the things that's su- surprising about it is that as was so um, brilliantly argued in a a recent book by uh, Professor Catherine Fletcher, but the the Renaissance is a response to incredible violence. You know, you've got the the Italian wars that are ravaging the, the Italian peninsula, and the Spanish Empire and the French are sort of fighting it out, and Italy is a sort of battleground. And amidst all this, we get, you know, Leonardo and Michelangelo and Raphael and all these sort of brilliant creatives. And it's sort of nice to imagine them just sort of pottering around, doing a bit of art, doing a bit of sculpture. And from, But actually, when you look more closely, you'll realise that actually there's sort of battles happening out the window. And, you know, Leonardo is trying to build a, a sort of giant bronze uh, statue in, and in comes the Duke and says, actually, I need that for cannons. Sorry. So um, <laughs> there's a kind of... I think there's a slight romance to that period, but actually, chances are, if I went back there, I'd, I'd find myself being bombarded by, you know, <laughs> sort of artillery. So I don't know. I think, in the
0: back with a stiletto, Greg. Well, exactly, but- <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: stiletto knife. Yeah. So um I, as a very cowardly man, I, I would not want to go back very far at all. I mean, I've always been drawn to, you know, 1960s because of the music. I'd love to see Jimi Hendrix play. That would be fun. And they did have antibiotics, so that's uh, that's that's the sort of cowardly answer. If I'm totally honest, and if I can be protected in my time machine, and I get to, you know, I get to dodge all the dodgy stuff, I think it would be extraordinary to perhaps see the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Some some grand, enormous seismic change to, to history. I think it would be amazing to go and see you know, the first emperor of China, Qin Shi Huangdi. You know, maybe. Maybe his funeral or something, you know, that extraordinary event, supposedly. I mean, the the story goes that when he died, he was on imperial tour and they didn't tell anyone. And so his corpse was paraded through the streets and they were like, he's fine. He's fine. He's absolutely fine. And uh, (laughs) So I think it'd be quite interesting to see that. But I mean, there's so many, so many grand events from history. But, you know, if if you're asking me, where can I where can I go safely? I'd love to spend an afternoon with Leonardo maybe somewhere safe maybe his uh, his house in France when he's sort of half retired just watching him scribbling pottering around playing with you know helicopters <laughs> whatever he's doing that <laughs> afternoon that feels like a safe nice, nice afternoon out nothing too risky hopefully no, no battles in the background
0: Greg it's been an absolute joy having you on the podcast thank you so much it's a pleasure this week's show starred Greg Jenner and was produced and presented by me the editor was John Daugherty. You'll find more history wherever you're listening to this. Greg mentioned Matt's interview with Simon Sharma, but you'll also find Rutger Bregman, Yong Chang, Simon Seabag-Montefiore, and many more in our archive. Until next week, I'm Vas Christadulu. Thanks for listening.